supplies, uh, backpack. Josh Britt, uh, I've known, we, we, we always calculate the years. I think at least every fifth time we meet. Because like, we, what we can't believe is we've gotten this old. And so when we meet, when we meet, we're like, have we really known each other for that long? Uh, we met, I think, 18 or 19. And I don't know why we can't get this story straight. We've talked about it a thousand times. Um, but we've been friends for a long time. Um, and it just so happened that then Josh came to George Jenkins where I taught, uh, and he was teaching there. Uh, he's since uh, moved on. And, uh, but just how our lives have uh, overlapped continuously. Uh, and I'm not going to tell you that Josh is full of wisdom, all right, um, and full of insights. I'm going to let his kids and his wife tell you that. And, uh, but he is just a great friend of mine. And not only is he a great friend, he's a spiritual uh, mentor to me. Uh, I know we've walked hand in hand uh, through this thing, seen some uh, cool stuff happen. And so he is going to start us off uh, on this series of spiritual disciplines. This series is going to be an extended series. Uh, we're going to deal with what's called inward disciplines and then outward disciplines and then corporate disciplines, and there's 12 of them total. Uh, and throughout this series, we're going to have, uh, I'll be speaking, there'll be other people speaking. Uh, but here's what I want to take away just before we even start today is this. When we talk about spiritual disciplines like we talked about last week, it's this. It's not something that gives you a tool to become a habit, all right? Spiritual disciplines, the point, the entire point of spiritual disciplines is to put yourself in a position so that God can meet you there and use you. That's the whole deal, all right? And that is, that's the key to this whole thing. So don't think like, well, after this series, I'll be good to go. You probably won't be, okay? You'll have the tools to be good to go, but you're going to, it's, it's life, right? And so uh, Josh is going to come talk to us today. Uh, so if you would, just welcome him. Whoops. Sorry. not going as smooth as I intended it to go. <laughs> Wanted to grab a piece of music here. Where is the, uh, where's that one song hidden? Do we have that? Oh, uh, let's just look around We've, for it. It's, <laughs> hey. That's got perfect. Key All right, yeah, that's fine. I'm not gonna sing it. There it is. I did see it over there. I just missed it. Story of my life. Um, okay. Uh, first of all, I'm real excited to speak this morning. Um, and uh, maybe it's because I've been thinking a lot about the, the whole being hidden in Christ and, and the topic of what we're going to talk about today. Uh, but this chorus for this song uh, wrecked me. And I'm not a crier, but I'm so glad that we didn't go into this immediately after this song or uh, this would all look very different. Uh, but the chorus, Now I'm hidden in the safety of your love. I trust your heart and your intentions. Trust you completely. I'm listening intently. You'll guide me through these many shadows. If you have no idea what that means, and if you can't identify 
with that statement, then I'm glad you're here today uh, because uh, I do want to get sort of into the heart of that. Um, I do want to pray first, though, so let's do that. Father, thank you for what you do, um, and I just asked that this morning you would uh, let me speak no more and no less than what you want to say, and uh, just order my steps, and, um, and don't, be, don't play hard to get this morning, God. Um, that Please reveal yourself in a way that, that we understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, uh, I'm going to introduce myself really quickly, um, because I know a lot of you, uh, many of you I don't know, and some of you I barely know, so um, my name is Josh Britt. Uh, I play music up here a lot, um, and when I'm not doing that, I usually am working on my, uh, my dissertation, um, which I'm working on uh, not much this summer, actually, but I'm supposed to be. Uh, <laughs> uh, I teach uh, medieval history at USF. Uh, it's part of my GA assignment. It's what I do over there. I teach part-time. Uh, at Southeastern, online, um, whatever history class they allow me to teach. Um, and when I'm done with the PhD, I hope to be teaching something somewhere. That's the plan. So we'll <laughs> see how that goes full-time, hopefully. Um, and because of what we're talking about today, uh, which is meditation in the Christian context, okay, as a spiritual discipline, I want to reaffirm to you that I do believe in the Trinity, believe that I'm saved uh, by grace, through faith, by Jesus, who was born of a virgin, who died on the cross, sacrificially, bodily, raised again, and or was resurrected, ascended to the Father. He's currently sitting there at the right hand of the Father, waiting to come back at the end of days to collect us. Um, did I miss anything? Suffered under Pontius Pilate. Under Pontius Pilate. I knew some... I knew... It's like, Nicene Creed's my jam. Um, yes. So... I am fully uh, committed to uh, Bible-believing, uh, well-informed uh, uh, faith, okay? Um, because I know that when we talk about meditation, um, many of us immediately, we close up, right? We've been taught that, you know, we, we associate meditation with uh, the Eastern religions. We associate it with the New Age movement, um, I had a family member who got deeply involved in the New Age movement when I was a kid and wrecked her whole life, basically. Um, and I'm not saying that everybody that practices the New Age uh, uh, philosophy wrecks their life. Uh, this family member of mine actually did and, um, and has never quite been the same. She still carries crystals around in her pocket and tries to slip them under people's pillows and things and lost her family, and it was a nightmare. And so I, I was raised being told that anything to do with meditation was bad, right? Uh, whatever you do, don't try to clear your mind. That's, that's just, um, and, uh, and there's, you know, and we'll get into this more, um, you know, the, the, the physical um, components of, of contemplation or meditation and what, what, the, what the body is doing and all that. But, um, but, you know, I, I do want to reiterate that I in no way condone New Age, the New Age movement, New Age philosophy, Eastern religions, um, meditation in that context, right? Um, and by the way, there is no such thing as an empty mind. Uh, and if you're a teacher, you might want to argue with me on that. Uh, I know sometimes we have, you know, empty mind right there. But, uh, but there is no such thing. If you work really hard to empty your mind, um, just when you think it's empty, something will fill it, I guarantee you. 
So we need to be careful about what that is. So I hope now there's a, you know where I'm coming from. Uh, we are talking about uh, uh, engaging with God by living a meditative lifestyle, right? Um, not um, doing yoga or anything of that sort. Um, so I believe that, uh, that this idea of meditation, contemplation, the Christian experience is probably the most underrated component of the Christian life. Okay? And this is the discipline of living a meditative life. Uh, we may call it having our quiet time. Um, but I think that doesn't do it justice, right? Because when I was at summer camp when I was a kid, we had quiet times, right? And we all, like, retreated to our bunks or, or a tree or something. And uh, we had this little booklet that had everything laid out for us, what we're supposed to pray and then what we're supposed to think about. And then we, we did that, and then we played kickball or whatever afterwards, um, which was fine. But, uh, but I want to go deeper than that. I want to call it what it is. I want to reassign the word meditate to the Christian experience, right? Because it's used in the Bible all the time. And, um, um, and I'm actually going to start with a joke. I know this is bad, and this is against the better judgment of my wife. Um, and it's actually a really bad joke. So uh, it breaks all the rules of joke telling. I actually have to give you knowledge that you then have to use in order to get the punchline, which is kind of weak anyway. So, uh, but it makes a really good point that we're going to come back to a little bit later on. Um, or hopefully we'll, 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 we'll deal with throughout the whole thing. So how many of you guys have heard of a guy named Rene Descartes? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. This is good. Um, can I give you something? Ooh, no. I thought I might have stolen a pen from the vineyard, but I didn't. Um, that's all I got. Um, so, uh, so Rene Descartes, 17th century philosopher, mathematician. Uh, if you take a philosophy class, you're going to learn about Rene Descartes. He's really influential. You can thank him for creating analytical geometry. If you are not a math person, you hate math, you can thank that dude because he's the one that kind of marries geometry and algebra together. Um, so he, so he thinks that way. But the, his most important philosophical statement is, is a phrase, um, go, in Latin it's cogito ergo sum, and it's translated as I think, therefore I am. And you've probably heard that before. Uh, that's Descartes that said that. And the reason, the, the reason or the way he got to that is, uh, is he, he's living at, at the threshold of the scientific revolution, all right? Uh, people are starting to think uh, scientifically for the first time. This is the early modern period. It's the 1600s. Uh, Francis Bacon is talking about empirical evidence, the scientific method, using your senses to, uh, to gain knowledge, right? If I smell it, if I touch it, if I can taste it, and, and all this thing. And Descartes says, I don't buy it, right? I have, I have five senses, and I know, I, I know that I know that there's been times when those senses have lied to me, Okay? We've all smelled something that wasn't there. We've all thought we heard something that, that we didn't hear. I used bleach one time, uh, a very poor decision in an enclosed room uh, when I was working at the fun center to clean some tile and screwed up my nose for the rest of the day, and I thought I smelled bean burritos for the entire day. Um, and uh, so our senses can, uh, can play tricks on us. And Descartes says, if I really want to gain true knowledge, then I need to go beyond my senses because my senses aren't reliable. And so... Uh, the only thing I've got left is my mind. And he says, uh, I'm going to start by doubting the existence of everything. The table, the communion elements, Andy's hat, uh, 
Chuck's coffee cup. I'm going to doubt that those things actually exist until I can prove them with something other than my senses. And you're probably thinking, this guy's nuts. How do you do that? Um, so he sits around, and he, he thinks and thinks and thinks and thinks. And, uh, and he realizes that um, he can't, the one thing that he can't doubt, the one thing that he knows positively for sure is that he cannot doubt that he's doubting. Now, I know you're thinking, this guy got paid to do this kind of stuff? Yeah, unfortunately, those jobs don't really exist anymore. Um, I can't doubt that I'm doubting. Okay, you guys buy that? You, you get it? Because if you start to doubt that you're doubting, then you, you're doubting and you're back to where you started. So you can't doubt that you're doubting. Then he says, if I'm doubting, then I'm thinking. That's the second step. And then he says, if I'm thinking, I must exist. Now, he hasn't proven that his physical body exists, but he's proven that his mind exists, okay? That, is, that, 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 that the part of him that thinks exists. And that's okay because Descartes is the guy that actually gave us a scientific way to approach what we call Cartesian dualities. They're, they're actually named after Descartes, Cartesian. Um, and that is the separation between the mind and the body. And the mind isn't the brain. The mind is the thing in you that makes you you, Right? If you, if you keeled over, heaven forbid, and they rushed you to the hospital, and, put, and, and it's too late, they can't save you, but they put your body on support systems, they can make your body work, but they can't make your body live, right? Because the part of you that gives you life, whatever you want to call it, soul, spirit, your consciousness, whatever, is gone, and they can't recreate that, right? The thing that makes Chuck Chuck is, would be gone, Right? His body's there, blood's pumping, lungs are getting air because of the machines, but it's not living, right? And so Descartes says, there's a separation, there's a difference, and I know that that exists because I can prove it with my mind, right? So if I think I exist, cogito ergo sum, his existence is contingent upon his thinking. So here's the joke. Descartes (laughs) is walking down the sidewalk, there's a little girl selling lemonade, and, uh, or maybe at the time, I don't know what she was selling, 17th century. Beer, absinthe maybe, I don't know, he's French. Um, I'm sure little girls were selling that on the sidewalk back then. Uh, and she says, hi, Mr. Descartes, how are you? He says, very, very well, how are you? And she's like, great. She's like, would you like a glass of lemonade? And he says, I think not. And then he disappeared. <laughs> there we go. All right. That's out of the way, but we'll come back to it later. <laughs> All right. See, it wasn't so bad. It actually gets worse every time I do it. So we're going to break this down into three, um, or four, actually. No, three. Uh, three points when we talk about meditation. Um, what is meditation in the Christian context? We need to define it so we know what we're talking about. And then what does it look like when we're doing it the right way? This is, that, we're not going to spend too much time on these first two points. We just want to deal with them, get them out of the way. If you're new to the being a Christian or um, have never really thought much about it, then maybe a little instruction on kind of what it looks like and how to, you know, how to do that is good. And then finally, and this is the crux of it all, why should we want to meditate or contemplate at all? What's the, what's the takeaway? What's in it for us? Um, and so, uh, so what is meditation or contemplation in the Christian t- context? I'm trying to define it here. You look in the dictionary, and it's no help. It's, it's a bummer to pick up. It's like thinking deeply. Um, 
but I would say that, it, you know, generally speaking, meditation is the intentional, and that's key, intentional withdrawal for a period of time from all external responsibilities and choosing to focus that mental, emotional, and spiritual effort on a single thought, passage of text, or even the creation of something, maybe a picture, a poem, or a song. Richard Foster, who wrote The Celebration of Disciplines, which kind of was the catalyst for this whole thing, um, defines it very simply as the ability to hear God's voice and obey his word. The reality is, it is very simple um, in, in concept, but it's a little more difficult to put into practice, right? I'll talk about why that is in a second. So in any case, when we're meditating on something, uh, we're letting our guard down, okay? It's absolutely crucial um, that, uh, that when we're thinking, when we decide, all right, I'm going to take X amount of time, and I'm going to meditate. I'm going to take a passage, maybe from the Gospels, something about the life of Jesus, maybe from the Acts of the Apostles, maybe from Revelation. Good luck with that, but if that's your thing. Um, or whatever it is, you know, the Bible is, the whole Bible is fair game, right? It's the Word of God, and it speaks to us in different ways at different times. Uh, and so we pick a passage, we think about it. Um, we're saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit around, I'm just going to think about this for, I don't know, 10 minutes, 5 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever. It has to be intentional, okay? But we also have to be in a place that we feel safe, okay? That's why public places are a really bad place to, uh, to try to meditate on the Word of God because uh, you're always kind of, whether you're aware of it or not, you're probably subconsciously wondering, is anybody watching me? Is somebody going to come up behind me and, and say, hey, how's it going? I haven't seen you in like three years. Uh, start a conversation. Do I look stupid? Um, whatever, okay? So a private place, a place where you can be vulnerable, Okay? Mentally, you're vulnerable, and this is why it matters what you're meditating on, and this is why this is one of the major differences between meditation in the Eastern uh, context and Christian meditation, um, and that is, uh, actually, they're, they're completely different. They're, they're, they're polar opposites. Uh, in in the, the New Age iteration of meditation, it's, an, it's a practice of export. Okay, you're, you're moving everything out of your mind that you possibly can. You're losing your own individuality. You're losing your personality. You're becoming one with the cosmic consciousness or whatever. I'm not an expert on this, as you'll tell, and, and that's okay. Um, but I do know enough to know that you're trying to empty your mind and, uh, and become, you know, and enter a higher state of consciousness and being. Um, Christian meditation is all about import, okay? Christian meditation, that's the moment where you're on your own with God. You are completely vulnerable. You have opened your brain wrinkles to let God in, okay? It's hearing God's voice, and you hear God's voice by thinking about things that are godly, okay? Scripture, worship songs, things that, that are um, verifiably godly, right? I keep clicking, um, and this shouldn't be a scary thing. We say, you know, be careful on what you let in, right? That can be kind of scary. And I was scared about this as a kid, and, this, and it's a shame that I was, but I, I was always wondering, you know, am I letting bad things into my mind? Uh, oh, no, did I stop thinking for a moment? Um, is my mind going to empty? I was so terrified that I would end up uh, like, my, like my family member uh, that I, it was almost, you know, debilitating, 
to a degree. Um, but, but we do need to know um, or be aware of what it means when we're told in Proverbs 4.23 to guard our hearts because everything we do flows from it. Okay? So, uh, so pick something. You, you, um, you pick something to meditate on. And that could take any, way, any uh, shape or form that you like, you know. Um, And I already told you, there's no such thing as an empty mind or a spirit. If you labor to empty your mind, uh, something will most definitely fill it. And that's uh, what you want to be aware of. That's why Paul says to pray without ceasing, right? We're not literally praying under our breath all the time. That would be scary uh, to most people. Um, but, uh, but we are in a meditative, um, hopefully, learning how to live a meditative life where we live a lifestyle of prayer and meditation, okay? Uh, and the reality is most of us actually meditate on things on a regular basis, whether we know it or not. Um, we might refer to it as overanalyzing or overthinking things. I do it when I mow the yard. Um, often, however, our meditative life is centered on the negative. For example, uh, you know, a lot of us get so worked up about things that might happen in the future that actually never do happen, like that conversation with the coworker or the family member or whatever that you're just dreading to have and you're already worked up and you're fired up because you know they're going to say this, but if they do, this is what you're going to say. And, and then you're going to say that and then they're going to be like, oh man, and you're going to put them in their place and then um, it, you know how it is, right? But it's, it's negative, right? But we could spend so much time thinking about these things. We, we, we obsess over them, right? Every time we have a moment where we're not, we, we don't have to be intellectually or mentally engaged in something, our mind turns to these things, right? Um, what if we, what if those moments uh, our minds were turning to things uh, like, uh, like Christ, like Scripture, like our relationship with Him? Sometimes, maybe it's not even Scripture, maybe you're just daydreaming about who Christ is. That would be kind of fun. And uh, uh, so, you know, so we do, we, we do meditate. We, we, we obsess, we focus, and we think about things, but usually they're things, uh, our minds take the path of least resistance, like electricity and water, right? We, we gravitate towards certain things, and because we're sinful by nature, we gravitate towards things um, that, that gratify the flesh, okay? Um, Meditating is nothing new in Christian spirituality. Uh, we know that Christ himself deliberately made time for spiritual meditation. And indeed, we get the impression from the Gospels that his spiritual health and success in completing his mission was dependent on it. Okay. Um, there's a passage in Luke. Yeah, Luke 5.16. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Very short verse, but it speaks volumes. Um, you can just picture Jesus doing those things. Right? Hey, where did Jesus go? And you see him like slinking off um, behind the rock or whatever to those lonely places to pray. All right, so that's what meditation is in the Christian context. Nothing hokey pokey, but it's an intentional period of time that we set aside. We pick something that we're going to think about, whether it's a scripture, song, uh, uh, a moment in the life of Christ. Sometimes we just think about what God's done in our own lives, and we take time where it's quiet, and we sit there, and we think about it. That's all it is. What's it look like when we put it into practice? This is very closely related to the last point, but it's worth going over. 
Um, the, the honest truth is it's entirely up to you. There's no hard and fast law about, um, about what a Christian meditative life should look like, okay? Um, there's no law or rule that governs your engagement with Jesus Christ. In fact, your relationship with your creator is subject to the same ebb and flow of every other relationship in your life, okay? Uh, when you get together, when you have a time, and I would recommend highly that you choose a particular time of the day that works best for you to get alone with, with the Lord, um, and probably the same place, maybe a room in the house or a spot on the porch or someplace where you know you're not going to get distracted um, because that trains the mind to know when it's time to get down to business. Um, you're not distracted by things that you haven't seen before. Um, but, uh, but it's going to look different almost every time. There's, not, there's, there's, no, there's no rule book for this, okay? Your relationship with Jesus is the same in a lot of ways as your relationship with other people. For example, um, you know, uh, Isaiah. There you go. Isaiah, um, you know, many of you know Isaiah. Okay, He has a relationship with a lot of you. Your relation, his relationship with each one of you is probably unique. Okay, uh, But let's say Isaiah has a birthday party. Everybody comes to the birthday party. We have cultural conventions that tell us what to do at a birthday party. Everybody brings him a gift. Um, he, he sort of uh, engages with everybody about the same way at the birthday party, right? But when you're alone with Isaiah, it's different than when he's alone with anybody else, okay? Because your relationship is different. It has different dynamics. So if you think about church service as a birthday party, um, you know, we all have a relationship with Christ, most of us that come to church, um, and there's conventions culturally that we, we kind of do this, the, the stuff, and then we go home. Um, but when you're alone with Jesus, that's where the rubber really meets the road, okay? That's where the, the unique qualities of your relationship with him really begin to shine, okay? That's, that's where you run out of the grave, okay, from that first song, which again wrecked me, um, when you're spending that time, that 30 minutes, that 45 minutes, consistently, nearly on a daily basis, that's when you begin to notice that you have run out of the grave, okay? And it happens over time. All right. Um, I'm going to offer a couple suggestions, all right? I've already mentioned some of them. It needs to be quiet and free from distractions for a predictable amount of time. Start with the scripture as your point of focus. The physical place kind of matters. Like I said, this will become less important over time. If you, uh, if you go to the same place every time, you meditate on the word, your mind is to associate that kind of, kind of begins to download things that Jesus wants to tell you. All right. I'm just going to keep going. Um, oh, yep. We've known each other a long time, like Andy said before. This is okay. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and so your mind will know when it's time to get down to business uh, if you kind of choose the same place over time. Like Over time, this becomes a little less important, although you'll probably really enjoy going to that place, your hiding place, your prayer closet, whatever you want to call it. And it's funny because all of us kind of have our names for the places where we get work done. And even the name of the place that we give it is indicative of what we, how we see ourselves or how we see the work that we do there. I was talking to my brother and my friend Dan. My friend-in-law, he was my friend, then he married one of my wife's sisters. Um, 
and my, so we're all sitting around one night, and we're just chatting, and my brother, who is a wildly successful software dude, uh, he now works for Apple, um, and if, if you type in, if you use iTunes and use the search engine on iTunes, my brother wrote the code for that um, and was part of the iCloud thing uh, when it came up. Um, so my brother has a room in his house. He calls it his lab. And he goes to get work done and to be by himself and do what he needs to do. Um, my friend Dan, he's a general contractor. He does construction work, owns a business, uh, and he has an office. That's where he goes and gets work done. I have a study. That's where I go to get my work done. Uh, some of you may have a shop. Some of you may have a den. Uh, there's a whole lot of them. Um, but uh, in the early modern Italian period, if you were rich and you had a lot of money and you built yourself a palace, it would always have a room off of the bedroom called the studiolo. And when you wake up in the middle of the night because you can't sleep, that's where you'd go. Actually, they slept in two shifts. They'd sleep for four hours, get up for about 30 minutes to an hour, and then they'd go back to bed and sleep for another four hours, uh, which I think would be actually kind of nice. Get a lot of work done that way. But they go into the studiolo, and that's where they would read, think, write. Um, women weren't allowed in there, though, so that was a problem. But... Um, <laughs> So it's natural for us to want to find a place to, to be alone. And, and, and in the Christian context, these are the places we go to seek the Lord and to listen to what he's trying to tell us. Okay. Um, why should we do it? I want to move this along because this is kind of the crux of what I want to talk about. There's a few reasons why, and I'll go over each one. Number one, God expects us to, right? should be the only reason we need but. We're human, so we need more. God expects us to. Number two, it prepares us for the good, the bad, and the ugly. Number three, over time, it becomes a spiritual yet very tangible space of refuge. It's hard at first to make time to do this, but once you start and it becomes something in your life that's just part of your routine, you'll look forward to it every day. And, there is, and, and when you don't get to or something's distracting you, you really have to just, Lord Jesus, help me not to be irate right now. Uh, so keeping me out of my prayer room or whatever. It's, it's going to be um, life-changing. It becomes a tangible space of refuge. We'll see how that works out in Scripture too. Uh, and for the fourth reason, we need it now more than we've ever needed it in our current culture, okay? Hands down. So God expects us to live a meditative life that is intentionally centered on him. Okay, God has made it clear in his word that we should seek him in this way, and it's not one of the Ten Commandments, but in the Bible, God weaves meditation into the narrative so as to normalize it, right? Sometimes it's easy to miss it because pre-modern people, they were, they were you know... It was easy. Their lives um, um, were sort of more compatible with a meditative lifestyle than ours are today. Um, we could go through. I have a whole list of psalms here. I'm not going to read them all, but in Psalm 119 alone, uh, I meditate on your precepts. Consider your ways. The rulers sit together and slander me. Your servant will meditate on your decrees. Uh, cause me to understand the way of your precepts, that I may meditate on your wonderful deeds. I reach out for your commands, which I love, that I may meditate on your decrees. I will meditate on your precepts. Uh, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long, for I meditate on your statutes, that I may meditate on your promises. 
143, I remember, remember the days of long ago. I meditate on all your works in 145, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. That doesn't, that's just Psalms. That's just two chapters out of Psalms, um, but they're all over the place. In Genesis, Isaac was actually out in the field meditating in the evening when he sees the camel train showing up with Rebekah in it, the woman he's going to marry. Um, it just says he's out in the field meditating one evening, and he sees the camels show up. Um, the meditating wasn't obviously the, the main part of the verse, but, um, but the point is he's there. The Bible just like throws it in like that's something that normally he would be doing, right? They were eating dinner and this happened. He was meditating in the field and that happened. Um, this is something the people in the Bible did. Obviously, uh, in the Psalms, uh, David talks about it a lot because he's, he's one of those types of people, right? He's, he's an artist. He's, he's a musician. He's, he's passionate uh, he lays on his bed and meditates on the Lord and thinks of the, the ways of the Lord. Um, we can learn a lot from David in that. But it is uh, it's woven into the Bible. God does that on purpose. Um, Luke 5.16, I already read it, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Peter and John bring this up, uh, not specifically using the word meditate, but uh, I would argue that being in the proper state of mind was crucial for Peter and John, right? And it's no wonder because they were with Jesus, right? They watched Jesus do this. First uh, Peter 4, 7, he says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. That's in the English Standard Version. In the NIV, it says, uh, be self-controlled and sober-minded so that you can pray, right? It, your, your prayer life is, is, is predicated upon your state of mind, right? It's, it's important. That's why um, they go together, but they're different. Um, uh, speaking of Jesus, uh, the, for the next point, for why we should meditate on the things of God, it prepares us for the good, the bad, and the ugly. I, I really don't know how to throw the ugly in there. It just came to me, and I liked it, so I threw it in. There you go. Um, but it does prepare us, right? It prepares us for the good. Um, we pray that God would, would bless us, right? We want that. Uh, and we've all gone through seasons of blessing. We've all gone through seasons where it felt like God was a million miles away, and we're wondering, uh, you know, where have you gone? Why are you playing hard to get? How come I'm praying, but nothing's happening? Um, how come it's taken a million weeks to get a travel invite from the Philippines for our adoption? Um, we're hoping to find out tonight, so prayers on that would be fantastic. Um, but it prepares us, right? Just because God drops blessings in your lap doesn't mean you don't have to prepare for that, right? You need to prepare for the good fortune as much as the bad fortune, <laughs> if such a thing exists. Um, I believe that Jesus' withdrawal into the wilderness to be tempted is one of the best case studies for why we need to make room in our lives for contemplating God's word and for listening, okay? And uh, I'm just going to read through that. I want to kind of make it sort of the centerpiece, the flagship scripture, if you will, for what we're going to talk about. Oh, that's Psalms, for what we are talking about. Um, so, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. This is Jesus' time in the wilderness. Uh, keep in mind the timeline here. Jesus is a handyman. He, took, he probably took over his dad's business, Joseph. He's probably a local dude that fixes stuff. People know who he is. Um, really shows no signs of being um, a teacher, 
Um, he's not really qualified, technically speaking. Um, I mean, there was that time at the temple when he's 12 years old. Um, but other than that, we don't really have any evidence given to us that he, uh, that they had high hopes for him as an educator or a rabbi. Um, and then, uh, so <clears throat> he's a handyman. And then John's baptizing people in the Jordan. Jesus goes, gets baptized. Uh, this activates, it, it initiates uh, Jesus's, uh, man, I'm bad at this. Sorry. This, uh, I wonder if, okay, I'm going to do this. Okay, it's better. Uh, and so uh, he gets baptized. It initiates this public ministry. And then, uh, and then he goes into the desert, right? The Holy Spirit comes. The, the Father affirms Jesus' identity as the Son of God. And then Jesus, which is great, you know, we would all celebrate and go have a big dinner afterwards or whatever. Jesus goes into the desert to be tempted by Satan. Okay, and so we're going to read it. Uh, verse 1. So then Jesus, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after eating 40 days and 40 nights, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, there was no eating going on, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I'm going to stop there because I know we use this passage to talk about fasting, as we should. It's a great illustration of, of fasting and dealing with temptation. But when Jesus says, We do not live uh, by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, in other words, what he's kind of saying there is, my life does not depend on having this thing that I want right now. That's what he's saying. And that is kind of what fasting is about, right? But it's also uh, at the heart of setting aside time every day to meditate on the things of God, okay? Uh, there's other things we could be doing. There's other people we could be serving, okay? Um, but to intentionally exile ourselves away from that, go into our hiding place and start listening to God um, is an act of, uh, of a type of fasting, right? Uh, then he says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, and the devil throws in some Bible stuff here, he'll command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Uh, and then Jesus uh, also responds with, the, with Scripture and says, again, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay. What the devil is offering Jesus, because he knows Jesus really wants this right now, is comfort and security. Okay. When we're in a... When we're, in a place of hardship, or we're in a place where God has been kind of tight-lipped about what's coming next, uh, which is most of the time, um, <laughs> it's easy to try to demand that God proves that he's going to take care of us. Oh, yeah, God, well, if you're going to do that, then I need to see some evidence, right? We want to put the fleece out. Um, and... Uh, and what the devil is doing here is he's tempting Jesus to try to demand things of God uh, that God wasn't willing uh, to give up at the moment, right? And, um, and Jesus says, you know, we're not, supposed to, we're, not, we're not putting God to the test. 
Um, and again, so he thwarts the devil there. Uh, and then uh, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, ah, be gone, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And of course, here he's dealing with the temptation of power and success. Gratifying the flesh, the need for, for comfort and security, and uh, the temptation to, uh, to seek power um, and success. These are all things that Jesus was going to deal with throughout the rest of his ministry. Okay? These are all issues that actually anybody that has... Uh, actually, they're all issues that we all deal with, but Jesus specifically is about to enter a time... I'm just going to take this off so I don't make things sketchy. So, um, so these are all things, right? Uh, Jesus, when he goes into his public ministry, right, uh, he deals with, with moments. He fasts, he prays on a regular basis, right? Um, security. I have no place to lay my head, right? I don't have a home to call my own. Where is Jesus getting his financial support from? I don't really know, but he did attract, you know, wealthy people that were probably uh, supplying that. And a lot of times he probably went without. And the power and success, when on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, when Peter sees that, Peter says, not knowing what to say, he says, oh, Lord, we should build this, this uh, tabernacle or a temple and we should, you know, put you in it. And then everybody can come and, and worship you. And I can guarantee you, Peter's not the first one that had that idea and he wasn't the last one, right? There were people trying to enshrine Jesus for what he was doing. And Jesus had to say, that's not why I'm here. I'm moving on. He could have stayed there and he could have accepted that, but he'd already fought the battle and he already had a victory back in the desert, right? All three of these things, which I believe were primary, would have been primary temptations for Christ throughout his ministry, were dealt with in the desert, okay? And, uh, and I actually have a whole chapter that I write on the desert. In fact, my whole dissertation kind of focuses around the desert, and I won't bring that up right now uh, as much as I want to. Um, but there is a wilderness theology in Christianity. The wilderness shows up all the time, right? It starts in the Old Testament. It goes through, even through the medieval period, they, they, they take the wilderness um, and use it as, uh, as illustrative of the Christian life. When we go into our, 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 our prayer room, our moments of meditation and study on the Word, we are entering our private little desert, okay? And that's how I want us to think about it. Um, we're giving things up, we're taking time aside, we're sitting down. And the desert isn't always a bad thing, right? The desert is very peaceful. Uh, the desert is beautiful, actually. Um, I was in the Gobi Desert uh, a few years ago, um, which Gobi actually means desert, so the desert desert. Um, and... Uh, on a, on a missions trip, and we were in a village out in the middle of nowhere. And I remember at night just being there, and, and I was actually laying on the ground. Uh, we had beds and stuff, but I was, I was outside on the ground, and just looking at the stars, it was amazing. And then, and then the space station went by, actually. I could see it, which is kind of cool. And then we saw wild horses running across the desert, you know, against the sunset, 
which is very picturesque. And it wasn't even planned. Um, they were wild, of course. And so the desert can be absolutely beautiful. I've seen it. It's also very quiet. There's a quietness in the desert that rivals anything else you'll ever experience in your life uh, when there aren't other people around. Uh, okay, Jesus spent time in voluntary exile when he went into the desert. And it's important to know that it was voluntary. The victories that he won in the desert were victories that he took with him into his public ministry. And the same is true for us. The desert is where we will fight and win our most difficult and pivotal battles. Okay? You want to run out of the grave? That doesn't happen here. It might start here, but it happens day after day after day. You have an addiction that you're trying to give up or just a, a habit or a personality trait that you know you need to ditch. That doesn't happen overnight, usually. But where it does start to happen is day by day by day. When you enter your prayer room, your, your, your moments of meditation with the Lord where you're allowing him to speak into your life. Um, if you wait until the moment of crisis to start asking God to change you when you're about to lose your temple temp, lose your temple um, that'd be bad lose your temper and go crazy on the cashier at Publix if you're about to click on that internet site that you know you're not supposed to be clicking on if you're waiting to click play on the Netflix movie that you know you shouldn't watch if you're uh, you know whatever it may be um, Whatever, you know, if, if you know you probably drink too much to have a good time, you're not an alcoholic maybe, but, but you know you want to tone that down a notch, if you wait until you're at a party for, to ask God to change you, that's not success, and it's not going to happen. If Jesus waited until the moments of crisis in his ministry to deal with those battles, it would have been a very different picture, okay? And the same is true for us. We have battles to fight. We have battles that mean things. We have battles that will change us. Um, I have a good scripture for that too. Second Corinthians five seventeen. Paul says, "Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come." We most of us know that, and we believe that when we get saved, we become a new creation. And to an extent, that's very true, right? We we've, we are now somebody that can enter heaven because sin has been taken care of. That part of us has changed. Our spiritual identity is now different. We're now citizens of heaven that are welcomed into the gates when we die. But there's all, all these other things that need to change. Okay, and uh, as we regularly wait on God in the quiet place, our spiritual DNA begins to change. It doesn't happen overnight, but what's going to happen is when you're about to lose it at the, at the cashier at Publix or click on that site or have that drink or whatever it is you're trying to ditch, that next cigarette, um, what you'll find is that as God changes you one spiritual chromosome at a time, you become to be, you, you come to be a person that actually doesn't desire to do those things. You become a person that doesn't lose their temper. You become a person that doesn't take the drink. 
Now, I know some of you are thinking that's hogwash. I am what I am. I've been this way my whole life. I'm not going to change. The Bible says that you change. The problem is we think it happens in a way that it doesn't usually happen, right? And then we get upset because God doesn't change us. If you're not spending time letting him work on you quietly without talking, and sometimes without the radio on. I was driving to USF. I had really great worship music on one time. I remember this was like three years ago, I think. And uh, worshiping, kind of, just doing this. And, uh, and then I, and I was just, and I thought I was having a really good time with the Lord. And I really felt my spirit. God was like, turn the music off, right? It's almost like God is saying, don't make me raise my voice. Um, because he doesn't have to, right? We need to provide an environment in which we can actually hear um, over time, our moments of meditation become spiritual yet very real and tangible spaces of refuge. This place becomes our sanctuary. If you have any experience with this, if you're somebody that regularly does what I'm talking about, you understand the comfort of that physical space. Okay? Uh, <clears throat> we can identify with the psalmist. When he says, for God alone is my soul. This is Psalm 62, 1 through 5. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. Those are words that come out of quiet meditation with the Lord. We can take them onto the battlefield, right? But like I said, usually the battlefield is there in that little room. That's where God changes us. Um, another, it's not on the notes, but another benefit to this, and the reason that, that we find success in changing when we're practicing a, a meditative approach to seeking God is because you're forcing the devil to fight you on home turf, okay? When you're outside on your own in the world at that, like I said, moment of crisis, it's a really bad time to start uh, trying to get the armor on, okay? You're already in the devil's territory, okay? That's why Christ voluntarily goes into the desert. He calls the shots. Jesus always called the shots, by the way, but, but he calls the shots by going into the desert and making the devil come to him, right? The devil had to come to him, and then, and, and this is Jesus's arena, right? And that's where we have victory. That's why we can have victory there, or at least one of the reasons. All right, start to wrap this thing up. Um, in Psalm, it's also a place where we find answers. I'll move on to the next point after this. Psalm 73, 16 through 17. I was reading this the other day. I tried to read like one psalm a day, even if it doesn't make sense. Um, I read through and it's like, did nothing for me. Um, I read it anyway, <laughs> not lying. And then I'll read through it again, and usually something will pop out. This was one of those days, like nothing was happening. I'm reading this psalm, and I tick them off in my Bible so I can go back later and remember where I was. That's how spiritual I am. Um, <laughs> I don't even remember half the time, um, but that's, that's okay. Um, psalm 73, 16 through 17. So, so David's like complaining to God, all these Wicked people are prospering, and they have, you know, uh, they've got power, and people listen to them, and they're singing hymns to them, and they got big houses, and and whatever. And he says, uh, and then he says, um, and when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. 
until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Okay? The sanctuary of God is your place, your, your quiet place, that you allow God to create by taking the time to sit. Okay? Or lay on the floor, stand on your head, doesn't matter. It's up to you. Remember, individual relationships with the Lord. Um, but being alone is important, right? Paul, uh, Paul, David enters the sanctuary of the Lord, and the thing that he'd been thinking about that was bothering him, the thing he was obsessing over that he couldn't figure out, then God gave him the answer to that and taught him how to put it into context and perspective, and then he could move on, okay? Then I discerned their end. And it wasn't a good end, by the way. It was, uh, it was bad, um, all right, point here. We need, to, we need it now more than ever. Last point on why we should want to do this. Okay, God does not want to have to raise his voice, like I said before. Um, you know, we live in a culture, and we pro- most of us don't even know this. In fact, even those of us that do don't think about it very often. But we live in a culture that's um, dominated by time. We always think about time, okay? This didn't really start happening until, like, the 19th century in full. It starts, like, in the late 18th century. There's a great article on the concept of time over the long term by E.P. Thompson. He's a socialist. I'm just warning you, not a Christian author. He's a historian, um, but highly regarded, or was. He's passed away now. But, um, but he wrote this article in the 60s about time. And uh, so, um, yeah, E.P. Thompson, if you want to look it up. And, uh, but here's the, here's the catch, okay? Pre-modern societies looked at time as cyclical, okay? Most medieval peasants actually didn't even know how old they were, for sure, because the same thing happens every year. Their religion was cyclical. Uh, their year consisted of celebrating certain events in Christ's life, right? The Annunciation, uh, uh, the, uh, the Nativity, uh, the, the crucifixion, resurrection, last judgment. And they, every one of these events had a feast throughout the year. So every year they, went, they literally went through the life of Christ and thought about it on a regular basis, putting themselves in there. Um, and, uh, but when we start to get to the 1700s with the rise of industrialization, uh, time literally becomes money. Like it literally, like your time is money. And so we start shifting the way we think about it. It's the first time in really uh, the history of ever that, uh, that people leave their homes to go to work. You know, prior to that, work took place in their homes, right? And now it's kind of ironic that now technology is allowing us to stay at home and do work once again. Um, kind of interesting. Uh, but, uh, but we live in a culture where time is literally money. So... Uh, if you're not doing something productive with your time, you're, you're wasting it, right? And it's, and it's hard. Um, you know, we, we live in a world of contradictions. In our modern reality, uh, we're told to slow down, take time for ourselves, take care of our mental health. At the same time, uh, though, we're also bombarded with the pressure to do more, be more, make more money, have more stuff. We speak a rhetoric of rest but pursue a lifestyle that teeters on the brink of hysteria. If we think our public selves, this, is a, this keeps popping in my mind, if we thought of our public selves, like the, the, the person that we are in public, 
you know, we all have our individual giftings, we all have our own individual personalities, we're all experts kind of on something, right? We know stuff. Um, even if you don't think you are, you are. So if we thought of ourselves, um, if we thought of ourselves as, say, uh, I don't know, like individual shops in a village, right? One of us is a, a shoe cobbler, one of us is uh, a baker, one of us is um, a candlestick maker, blacksmith, whatever, okay? Uh, Scott's not here, no. Um, so, uh, so we all have these things, right? And we have these shops that are open nine to five. We're experts. When somebody needs our services, they come to us within our hours of operation. Saturday and Sunday, Actually, back then, it was like half a day Sunday. They didn't bother us, right? Uh, but then when shops open again, they come and they see us. Um, that's what it was like pre-modern. Our, our, our post-modern world that we live in today, we're no longer allowed to just craft our, you know, or hone our individual giftings. We're, we're, we're required to be 24-hour Walmarts, Right? We, we have to know something about everything. We have to be available all the time. Thank you, social media, uh, for constantly giving us something to say, right? We're all experts on stuff. We're expected to be. The second somebody has a medical condition, we're on WebMD. We can diagnose that. We know which medications you're going to get. Um, when the Supreme Court uh, passes down uh, a decision, we're all constitutional scholars, right? We all know uh, what the Founding Fathers were thinking when they wrote the Constitution, uh, and, you know, access to knowledge is good, but it also makes us a culture that places a premium on, uh, on time, right, uh, beyond really what it was intended to be. Uh, so when we say, and Andy, I was talking to Andy about this the other day, you know, as, a, as somebody that writes, or I'm supposed to be writing, um, a dissertation, I spend a lot of time sitting trying to write most, if you are, if any of you guys are writers or tried to write anything substantial, like 100, 200 pages long, you know that most of your time isn't spent writing, it's spent thinking and sitting and deleting. And, um, but it's hard to justify that in a world that says if you're not producing something, if you don't have something to show for the time that you spent, it's a waste of time. And, uh, and that's really hard. Like, I have a hard time dealing with that. It's one of the reasons I'm not writing as much during the summer. I'm working. I work at the Family Fun Center repairing video games. Um, I know. It's glorious. Um, I can use a multi-tester. And, uh, you know, almost got shocked the other day. Actually, I did get shocked the other day. It was awesome. Um, <laughs> it's my own fault. Uh, but, you know, so, but, you know, I work that hourly, you know, I work an hourly wage there uh, during the summer because I'm not teaching. And, um, and when I do take time and sit to work on the dissertation, my mind immediately starts going over what I could be doing instead to, 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 to show, you know, to show that I was being productive. And, you know, a paragraph doesn't cut it. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, I, and most doctoral students I've talked to deal with this, too. Uh, but the, you're going to deal with the same thing when you start to engage in this kind of meditative lifestyle, when you start taking time during the day. And when you become aggressive about protecting that time, people are going to question you. Oh, why can't you do this? Well, I, I can meet you there in an hour. Well, why, what are you doing? Uh, well, I've got, this, got a date with Jesus. What does that even mean? Well, I'll tell you when I get there. Uh, you know, uh, but when you start aggressively... Uh, protecting this time that you have, 
uh, with the Lord, people are going to question you because of the culture that we live in. But, I, but, I, but like I mentioned, if we think about this in terms of preparing ourselves for the good things that come along, right? It's not just about fighting and winning battles over temptations. If you, if you get blessed with something amazing, you get that job that you didn't think you were going to get, um, or you had a rich uncle somewhere that left you $500,000, uh, or whatever it may be, um, or there's this girl that you uh, have been dating and you wanted to marry you, and you ask, and she says yes, and you're like, oh, I totally didn't expect you to say that. Um, <laughs> good fortune has now landed in your lap. It's yours. What are you going to do with it? You know, lotto winners need wisdom, maybe even more so than people that struggle with finances, right? And we know the stories there. Um, so the time that you're spending in the desert, the time that you're spending in that prayer room, prayer closet, in, in, in meditative contemplation with the Lord is what's going to uh, help you. It will make the difference as you engage with the culture that we live in today. In fact, it's imperative. It's not a choice. Um, it's really not. Um, we don't have that choice anymore. Used to, life allowed for more downtime, right? Not anymore. Okay? Saturdays are no longer days of rest. Sundays, no longer days of rest. We're, we're required to do things all the time. Nothing is out of bounds, unless you make it out of bounds, but that's really hard to do. Um, all right, finishing up. Uh, sometimes we just have to say no to things in order to make it happen. Uh, I've noticed, this is my last statement, it's my closing statement, and um, I've noticed that in our current culture, speaking of the culture, the evangelical Christian community um, seem to be, in many cases, operating out of fear, paranoia, um, sometimes just, again, almost hysterically afraid, and not hysterically funny, but like frantic, right, afraid of the things that are going on in our culture. Whoever won the last election, uh, you know, uh, Pride Week, um, uh, what, there, I wrote a list here, actually, I should probably use it. Um, <laughs> gun control, secular science, uh, Global climate change, globalism in general, um, Bill Nye the science guy. You know, everything that we read about causes fear, paranoia. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't exercise our rights to vote. And we shouldn't exercise our rights to protest when things are unfair. Um, but it is not the political liberalism, the LGBTQ agenda, Bill Nye the science guy, globalism, gun control, uh, guns out of control, um, that's chipping away at your freedoms to identify as a Christian. It's just not. If, uh, if what I've talked about today is completely foreign to you, or if you've consciously rejected a meditative approach to seeking God, this is going to sting a little bit, but absorb it, please then you have already removed yourself from the uh, intimate communion between God and his beloved.
that has been happening since the beginning of time. Okay? That's something to be scared of. We live in a culture that is secular. We don't live in Jerusalem being bombarded by Babylonians. We are living in Babylon. <laughs> you know, we are living in a culture that has rejected the Christian worldview, um, and it's been a long time coming. Uh, and uh, you know, all you have to do is walk out the door and look at it. Okay? What I'm trying to say is, if you intend to engage that culture on simply the spiritual nourishment that you're getting from listening to worship music in your car or the messages that you get on Sunday morning, you're going to drown. And that is the reality. And it doesn't matter what the culture does. It doesn't matter if you get your guy or woman in office. It doesn't matter if the Supreme Court makes a decision you want them to make. You have to be in communion with the living God, with your creator, and that happens by taking time to be quiet, put stuff down, and listen. If you don't do that, he never, ever will get stuff into you. Stuff will happen. You'll get words here and there, but as far as actually making progress to defeat that crap that you've been wanting to defeat for so long, not going to happen on Communion wafers. If that's all your nourishment, and communion is sacred, I'm not making light of it, but you got to go deeper. You can't skim across the surface, and it takes time, and it takes, key word, discipline to do it. Okay? Um, if, you, if you commit to seeking God in solitude, in the quiet place, with the intent to hear him and know him, you'll find that the other stuff starts to fall away and you begin to fully live and help bring life to others, okay? All right, I'm done. All right, we're going to just take a minute here. Josh is going to hang here with uh, you know, if that's you, if you know that's you, Josh speaking, you're like, you know, I'm about as deep as a puddle, okay? And that might be something that's hard to admit, right? Uh, but it's not a condemnation thing. It's just a reality thing. Like, dude, if we can't come here and be real and say, you know, I mean, my depth uh, in relationship with Jesus Christ is really shallow, um, but I want to deal with it. Um, you know, I just invite you, everybody stand up. You know, if, if that's you, I don't need, you don't need to raise your hand because you already know it's you and God knows it's you. So you don't need to raise your hand, but we're going to do some business though, uh, with God, uh, this morning. Uh, and, and not to elongate this thing, but I'm going to tell you that I believe, I believe that this is the reality of where we're at. That, I mean, it's been hitting, uh, we would talk, the dependence on everything else except for Jesus, everything else to work out, 
you know, politically and socially. Uh, but I think it, it's really a time, and it always has been a time, where we have got to, as Josh said, is we've got to be in that place of meditation. And so we're just going to pray because if you're anything like me, this probably is something that you struggle with, all right? And so we're just going to pray. Here's what I want you to do. This might be kind of weird for some of you. I just want you to put your hands out like you're about to receive a gift, all right? And maybe you need a bigger gift. Okay. But, but I encourage you to do that. Uh, and, and we're just going to pray um, that, that we begin uh, to do this. Lord, would you, um, would you make it rain in here today? And begin to, to weave uh, into the hearts of people that are here uh, that maybe got lost maybe somewhere in the message or, uh, or thought, hey, you know, that's not me. I don't, uh, I don't sit and think very often. Or, um, or sometimes people associate this with, with uh, ivory tower stuff. You know, like Rene Descartes has time to sit around and think about all these things. But God, you've called each of us, no matter what we do and no matter what our personality is, to, uh, to engage with you in an undistracted and, and reverent uh, way. So I pray that you would begin to really weave that, that truth into the hearts of people here today. That you would bring repentance uh, and forgiveness uh, to those that want to engage in this and, and that know they've, they've maybe run away from you or they've been um, rejecting you. God, for we're your beloved. You've called us away with you into the garden that's enclosed. God, that beautiful place where you want to meet with us. Would you make that a reality in our lives? In our minds first, God, make it a reality. So that we make it a reality uh, in our daily lives. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.